Good morning, Church on Randall Place. If you will, please join with me in opening your Bibles this morning to Paul's letter to the Philippians. As you are aware, we're taking a break from 1 Corinthians due to Pastor John and his accident. But by the grace of God, as Nelson mentioned, he's recovering. So I'll be covering for Pastor John. And I'm an elder here at the church on Randall Place, Charlie Lopez. So again, if you will, please open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Philippians. This morning we're going to be looking at chapter 3. Just the first few verses of that chapter. Brothers and sisters, have you ever viewed joy in the Christian life as a safeguard for your faith. The Apostle Paul seemed to think that joy is a safeguard for the Christian faith. It can serve as a defensive wall protecting the believer from all kinds of attacks, which is something that we're very well aware are existent in the life of the Christian. So this morning, just very simply put, we're going to be looking at a text where Paul calls for joy in the life of the believer. And the reason we're going to see the reason why joy is needed. And he's going to remind us of our identity as of those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ, which in and of itself is great reason to rejoice. So if you will, please join with me as I read God's holy and perfect word. Listen to Paul's writings to the Philippians. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. May God bless this for us this morning, the reading of His Word. Please join with me in prayer. Our God, as we have heard and acknowledged in our call to worship, You are holy. You are other. You are set apart. And so we come before You, Lord, dependent, as dependent creatures, dependent upon You by Your grace, we ask, Lord, that You would open our hearts and our minds, that by Your Spirit working in us, You would grant it to us this day to hear Your Word, to understand Your Word, and to apply Your Word. And so, Father, we come before You, trusting wholly in Your name, dependent upon You, knowing that You give good gifts to those who ask. And so we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Joy repeated. As we begin looking at our text this morning in Paul's letter to the Philippians, at first glance, if you are familiar with this letter, it might be a little misleading just kind of dropping into this particular passage. But I thought it would be a good passage for us to, to look at this morning because very simply put, Paul's beginning a new section here. 
But again, if you're reading in context, if you read before chapter 3 and, and after, it, it, it seems a little misleading because of Paul's wording here when you look at the word finally. Paul, he, he, he issues forth this word. He says, finally. Because usually when somebody writes, whether it be a sermon or a lecture or any sort of uh, presentation, when they utter the words finally, it's an indication that they're drawing things to a close. They're, they're winding it down. The end has arrived. The conclusion is here. And so Paul, he writes in our text, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. But again, if you're familiar with this letter, Paul can't be wrapping it up. This is just the beginning of chapter 3, and there are four chapters in his letter to the Philippians. So Paul can't be wrapping it up. In fact, just a little humor, perhaps it's from this very text here where pastors find uh, the precedence to, in their sermons, appear to be winding things down only to go on for a longer uh, period of time. In fact, Kent Hughes in his commentary, he wrote about a boy who was in church with his father. And upon hearing the pastor utter these words from the pulpit, finally, the little boy nudges his father and asks his dad, he whispers in his ear, what, what does the pastor mean when he says finally? To which the father responds, leaning down to the boy, whispering back, absolutely nothing. So perhaps pastors from this text, they can say that they have apostolic precedence for such actions, right? To be only to appear to be winding down, but to keep going. But all joking aside, brothers and sisters, although it may appear to be, Paul is not concluding here. Paul is not wrapping things up. In fact, again, this is an excellent text for us to drop into. Because we haven't been in Paul's letter to the Philippians, because this is a transitioning point. This is Paul's transitioning into a new, fresh point. It's sharp and sudden if you understand the context and you're aware of this letter, but nevertheless, it is a new point that Paul is transitioning to. I have to kind of lay the groundwork for us. Because Paul, in the text previous to this passage, he was actually commending his friends, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Timothy and Epaphroditus, Paul issued forth um, these, these two young men as Christ-like examples. He, he commended them before the Philippians for their, their selfless sacrifice. Um, Epaphroditus was a member of the church at Philippi who had traveled some 800 miles to bring a care package to the Apostle Paul who was sitting under house arrest in Rome awaiting a verdict from Caesar, Caesar determining whether he was going to live or die. And young Timothy was Paul's protege in the faith, a son in the faith. He was a commendable young man. He preached the gospel. And so this is a transitioning point. Paul, he's turning from commending these close friends and we're going to see he's turning from commending these friends to condemning these dogs. These dangerous dogs. And we'll look at that later. But Paul, his usage of the word here in our text, finally, I think it might be better translated so we can understand that he is transitioning. It might be better translated as so then. Or well, then, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. So Paul, his, he's transitioning again and again. If you go through and you read Philippians, you'll notice Paul, every time he shifts or transitions in his letter, it's always involving the topic of joy. 
You see this in chapter 1, verse 18, when he concludes, and we see it here in chapter 3, verse 1, and then in chapter 4, verse 4. Those are three hinges where Paul transitions throughout the letter. Joy is a major theme in this letter. It's used something like 14 times. Philippians is known as Paul's letter of joy. Brothers and sisters, joy is the target that Paul wants his audience to hit. In fact, I hope I can argue the point this morning that joy, joy ought to be the distinguishing mark of every Christian. It is a defining mark of God's people. In fact, in the letter of Philippians, Paul himself is seen as a model of someone who rejoices, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. We saw that last week in my sermon. What brought Paul joy while he was sitting under house arrest? That Christ was proclaimed. This brought him joy. Even in difficult circumstances, Paul was a model of rejoicing. And so it would make sense here in this transitioning point for Paul to reach back out to his readers and to remind them that they ought to be doing the same. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. This is what Paul means here. When he, what does he mean here when he says to write the same things to you is no trouble? Did you see that in the, in the text? Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. What are the same things that Paul mentions here? Well, it's his many exhortations and many mentions throughout the letter to rejoice. Paul says it's, it's, it's no trouble for me to be writing to you to remind you that you ought to be rejoicing. You see, Paul, he's a, he's a true pastor because he doesn't mind a little redundancy. Paul's not afraid to repeat himself. And he makes it known. Well then, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. I love it because Paul, he's very well aware that he's repeating himself. And he's okay with it. But why repetition? Well, throughout the Scriptures, repetition, it, it shows emphasis on something. It shows the importance to emphasize something when you repeat it. The repetition shows emphasis on that topic. And so Paul, he's concerned with joy. But why is he concerned with the Philippians' joy? Were they just this gloomy, emo bunch who needed a little sunshine in their life? A little positivity to override their negativity? Well, I think Paul... Why the emphasis on joy? Paul, being the wise pastor that he is, he's aware of something. Paul is aware of something that the Philippians forgot or are just outright ignorant of. And quite frankly, brothers and sisters, it is something that I think we are either forgetful or ignorant of today. And that is, again, the importance of the grace. And I call it a grace. The grace of rejoicing in the life of the Christian. Paul helps us. We're going to see he's going to help us to better see our need for rejoicing. It plays a vital role in the life of the Christian. 
We're going to see how it plays a vital role by pointing out uh, a couple of things. The first thing that we should note uh, from looking at the text, look at the text. Paul is not just calling for a general kind of rejoicing. Paul's not saying, you know, you ought to just rejoice in the abstract. It doesn't matter. He's not saying plaster on and and kind of bolt on these fake smiles. Paul's not saying fake it till you make it. We all have either done that or we know Christians who do that, right? It's like, why is this guy always smiling? But I don't think Paul, he's just calling for rejoicing in the abstract. Why do I say that? Well, for one, the joy of the Christian is much deeper than just plastering on a smile and hiding behind that. It's more genuine And deeper than that. How do I come to this conclusion? Well, look at the text. There's a qualifier in our text. Paul says rejoice in the Lord. He doesn't just say rejoice for rejoicing's sake. Rejoice in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, very simply put, the Christian's joy, the occasion, the source of our joy is God Himself. Christ. David Strain, in his commentary, he says this about Paul's call to rejoice. He says, he is calling us to life in the Lord, resting upon, clinging to, and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it is to rejoice in the Lord, to rest upon, to cling to, and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, joy is pivotal in the life of the Christian. But again, we see here in his writing to the Philippians that it is a specific joy. It's joy in the Lord. A second thing that Paul points out for us in our text is um, for us to see the importance of joy. Rejoicing in the Lord more specifically is that rejoicing in the Lord, it's a safe place for the Christian to be. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Rejoicing in the Lord. Again, we probably don't often view our joy or rejoicing as a defensive wall, as a bulwark in our life, right? But it is a vital part of the Christian's defensive armory against the fiery attacks of the enemy against the fiery attacks of temptation, joy. All this talk about joy, though, I think it's right that we try to define it better because usually when we think of joy, we we equate it to just mere happiness. But I don't think that joy, or at least Christian joy, can be equated to mere happiness. Happiness, brothers and sisters, is always coming and going. It ebbs and it flows. But one of the things about happiness is what determines our happiness is circumstance. Steve Lawson, in his commentary, he better defines the difference between joy and happiness. Listen to what he writes. He says, joy is entirely different from happiness. Happiness comes from the Latin word fortuna which became the English word fortune. When my fortunes are good, then fortuna. Or happiness. 
rises high. Conversely, when my fortunes are down, then happiness drops through the floor. Happiness is entirely based upon the circumstances of life and can be experienced by both believers and unbelievers. Happiness is fleeting, temporary and fragile. It is a moment by moment experience that can flee as quickly as it comes. As the word indicates, my happiness is based upon my happenstance. But joy is different. And then John MacArthur clarifies even more. The joy of which Paul writes is not the same as happiness, a word related to the term happenstance, the feeling of exhilaration associated with favorable events. In fact, Joy persists in the face of weakness, pain, suffering, even death. True joy is not dependent upon circumstances. This is why we could see Paul sitting under house arrest, awaiting a verdict, determining whether he's going to live or die. And he says, I have joy. This is why he could be under those circumstances and write what is known today as his letter of joy. You see, joy for the Christian is not the same thing as mere happiness. And I say mere happiness because joy, it's not void of happiness, but it is not simply mere happiness either. Circumstances dictate happiness. When things are good, it's easy to be happy. But in one fell swoop or change in your circumstance for the worse, happiness evaporates. But for the Christian... As we see here in our text, our joy is in someone. Our joy is the Lord. I always try to write down little nuggets to clarify. You could write this down if you want. Joy is a divine gift that transcends all that the world has to offer. Joy is the supernatural excitement that we experience in God Himself. It involves gladness of heart in the things of God. It results from taking greatest pleasure in Christ and His kingdom above all other things. It is an exalting and an exhilaration in the soul arising from a heart that is filled with overflowing love for God and His Son, Jesus Christ. This is Christian joy. He is our joy. Who He is. What He's done. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, that we need to understand as Christians. Who He is and what He has done, He is our joy. Circumstances do not dictate that. Whether it be good days or bad days, they do not alter who Jesus is and what He has done for you. His full atonement for our sins. His perfect record of righteousness that is credited to you. The reconciliation back to God that we receive. The adoption of children of God in Christ. The hope of the resurrection and eternal life. Good days and good circumstances, they do not add to that. And bad days and bad circumstances do not subtract from that. When Christ is our joy, that is a joy that will protect us from whatever is going on around us. This is the kind of joy that is a safe place. I think this is why Nehemiah 8.10 famously reminds us, the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is a divine armament. Look at 
Just so we see this idea of joy being in the Lord. You can turn there if you'd like. But in Luke's gospel, chapter 10, verse 17. This is when our Lord, remember, he sent out this is during his earthly ministry. He sent out the 72 disciples and this is upon their return back to Christ after they went out and did a little missionary work and evangelism. Luke chapter 10, verse 17, listen to this. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And look at what our Lord says. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. That the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Who he is. And what He has done to save you is your joy. Circumstances do not dictate that. Who He is and what He has done. The joy of the Lord is a divine armament. Those living in His joy, they are resistant to the attacks that take others down. You see, the taste of joy, brothers and sisters, it renders the tempter's offerings bland by comparison. When Christ is altogether lovely, altogether satisfying, those attacks are bland. I have all that I need in Christ. Joy in the Lord is how Paul could be in prison yet rejoicing. Joy in the Lord is how we are not moved when we hear that the diagnosis is terminal. Joy in the Lord is how we are not overcome with grief when a loved one dies. Or when we lose our jobs. You see, brothers and sisters, joy in the Lord. Remember the qualifier. Joy in the Lord is a safe place for the believer. But again, as we will see, it stands as a safeguard. It also stands as a safeguard against the lures of people who would attempt to undermine the faith. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. So Paul, yet again, he, he jumps in this sudden and abrupt sharp turn, this shifting into this new topic, and he writes to his brothers and sisters in Philippi, and he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Here we have another sudden and abrupt turn. He makes a quick jump. And I just wanted to note, too, just so you jot it down for memory's sake, verse 1 is an imperative. An imperative is simply a command. Paul's not suggesting that we rejoice in the Lord. It's in the imperative mood. He's, you should, you need to do it, rejoice in the Lord. So he's jumping though here from this imperative of rejoicing in the Lord to giving this urgent warning now. We're not too sure what triggered this explosive warning. Commentators weren't too sure on this. Nothing in the letter, in the context, seems to, to indicate that there were false teachers in the church who were influencing or troubling the church. 
This, I think this is just simply a general warning against false teachers. Though they're not yet within the church, there's nevertheless a clear and present danger of those who would undermine the Christian faith. And I think if we look at this warning, it kind of fits with the flow of the letter, because as I mentioned earlier, uh, the verses previous to our text this morning, Paul gave these positive Christ-like examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Well, now he's going to contrast that with negative examples. Timothy and Epaphroditus, they had the mind of Christ. They were brothers in Christ. They were men who were caring, selfless, self-sacrificial. And then we contrast that with our passage before us. And we'll, we'll come up with these negative examples. But Paul, he wants the Philippians here to be aware of these, these dangerous adversaries. And they're very real, brothers and sisters. And he's going to paint for us what these adversaries look like. So Paul's urgent warning here... I don't think that it's uninformed. He's not making this warning from the dark. But look at the text. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The adversaries that Paul has in mind, they're familiar foes. They're not new foes. Paul knows these enemies all too well. In fact, Paul has had run-ins with these dogs before. And these are derogatory terms, and I get that. The derogatory terms here that Paul calls them, it, it masks who they are while at the same time revealing who they are. We don't see their true identity, but we'll see it is a Jewish identity. So Paul, he's, he turns from commending his friends to condemning these dogs. I'll just lay my cards bare. These were the Judaizers. These Judaizers were false teachers that Paul had a long history of combating. These Judaizers were men who claimed to be Christian. They came from a Jewish background. And they taught that Gentile Christians, that if they were to truly be saved, to truly be recognized as the people of God, then they had to essentially become Jewish first. And, and in doing so, they taught, well, okay, you need to trust in Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. You also need to keep the entire ceremonial law, all of the kosher food laws. You need to keep all of the ceremonial law. If we were to distill the Judaizers' religion and their false message down, it would simply be Jesus plus works. That's who these men were. And they're known as the circumcision party, hence their message, you must be circumcised. Paul called them the circumcision party. And in Galatians 2.12, he makes clear that they taught another gospel which could not save. Why? Because there is no other gospel than that of the sufficient work of Jesus Christ on the sinner's behalf. They were not... Just a different sect of Christian who were a little off. No, they were off. They were not Christian. In fact, Paul told us the dangers of the Judaizers in their teaching in Galatians 5, 1 through 4. Listen to this. Paul, he writes to the Galatians, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, 
I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. You see, these teachers, brothers and sisters, they boasted. They boasted of their Jewish credentials. They placed heavy emphasis on being Jewish. And Paul's designations here for them, I want, I want to point out, there's, there's a heavy hint of ironic sarcasm between, or behind Paul's derogatory terms for them. Because each one of these insults that we're going to look at, it takes a virtue, this quality or this trait that these Judaizers esteemed and held so high, and Paul's going to flip it on them and basically impale them with their own language, these own qualities that they boast of. He's going to impale them on their own vocabulary. So Paul's attacks on these false teachers, they reveal to us not just their Jewishness, but their ultimate error, as we're going to see. And their ultimate error is this. It is a misplaced confidence. The first insult, let's look at that. The first insult, Paul, when he says, look out for the dogs. This is aimed at their pedigree, their ancestry, their descent, their lineage. Look out for the dogs. Now, when we look at this, we might think, well, that's not so bad. Surely we could think of more worse insults to, to hurl, right? Dogs are nice. They're lovable. They're not so in Paul's day. Dogs in Paul's day, they were not domesticated. They were not pets. In fact, they were coyote-like scavengers who fed on filth their own vomit, trash, even dead bodies. They were filthy, unclean animals, dirty. Not an animal that you would want to take into your home and let jump into your bed with you. I'm just going to say, because it's hard for me to talk about dogs, I'm more of a cat person. But, but dogs in Paul's day were not like the dogs we know today. They were unclean creatures. So there's no better fitting title to place on Gentiles, non-Jews, who were viewed as unclean. They didn't keep the kosher laws of Israel. They were not God's people. They're dirty, filthy, vile. Therefore, the Gentiles are dogs. This is how a Jew would have viewed a non-Jew. They were unclean. So dogs make the perfect metaphors for Gentiles. They were outside of the covenant people of God. And so Paul, for him to take this designation and then to flip it and to apply it to the Judaizers, it's actually a big deal. Because Paul's essentially saying this, that by trusting and boasting in their lineage and their law keeping, they've become the outsiders. They've become the unclean dogs. Because following dietary laws, brothers and sisters, hear me please, this does not make you clean before a holy God. Being Jewish 
does not mean that you are automatically a child of God. In fact, just so you know, that's not my opinion. Ephesians 2.13, Paul tells us that access into the covenant community doesn't come by what you eat and it doesn't come by your lineage. Listen to Ephesians 2.13. Paul, he said, he's writing to Gentile Christians in Ephesus. He says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Your dietary laws and your lineage are not the determining factors for you becoming a child of God. You see, the ceremonies of circumcision, holy days, kosher laws, these things that divided the Jew from the Gentile, they've been removed. They are no more. But because these Judaizers, these dogs, as he calls them, they trusted in their Jewishness, their, their keeping of the dietary laws, that was the grounds for their acceptance before God. I am a child of God because of my bloodline. I am a child of God because of what I eat and what I don't eat. But in doing this, brothers and sisters, they were denying the true purity and the true acceptance that they had. Before God, which comes only through Christ. Hear me. Your race, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic status, your looks, your charm, none of these things stand as the ground or the basis for your acceptance before God. You see, this is why I'm going to go there. This is why racism within the body of Christ is so wicked. Because your race did not get you through the door. The blood of Christ did. There are no VIP entrances. It's only the blood of Christ. But Paul, so essentially he's telling the Judaizers, no, no, no. You think you're clean and you're the children of God, but you are unclean dogs and the outsiders of the people of God. Then look at his second insult here. He says, look out for evildoers. And again, I, I want to be clear. He's not talking about different groups of people here. This is the one group of the Judaizers. 
And this would carry with it just as much of a sting as the first insult because Judaizers, they also took pride in their law-keeping. That was another grounds of their acceptance before God. So you can see their resume, right? I keep the food laws. I got the right blood. I keep the law. That was the grounds of their acceptance. In fact, a nickname for some Jews and probably the Pharisees is they were the doers and the keepers of the law. That was their pious little slogan. Oh, look at the doers and the keepers of the law. This was another distinguishing mark for the Jews that separated from the Gentiles. Why? Because the Jews, they had the law. They observed the law. Gentiles didn't have the law and they didn't observe the law. Gentiles would be dubbed the evildoers. And so the Judaizers and their acceptance before God, it was found in their law keeping and their obedience of ritual, their ceremonial to the ceremonial and ethical demands of the Torah. You see, I want to just be clear. For the Judaizers, Jesus was not a savior. He was a helper. They possessed a self-imposed, elevated view of themselves. Their confidence was in themselves. That's why I think Paul began and he said, Rejoice in the Lord. It's safe for you. I hope we're getting a clear picture of these false teachers. They rejoiced, but it wasn't in the Lord. They had this confidence that was in self. There was this failure to recognize their need for the Savior. If you go, I didn't put it down to read, but if you want to jot it down in Galatians 3, 21 through 29, Paul does an excellent job there detailing the purpose of the law. And the thing that he reveals is the purpose of the law is to expose you. It's to it's like that mirror held up so you can see all of your blemishes, all of your imperfections. Why? So then you would see your need for Christ, that it would Throw you to Christ running. But here, the Judaizers, they failed to recognize the purpose of the law was to reveal you can't keep it. The purpose of the law is to reveal our need for a Savior. And if you don't believe me in your personal time, I dare you to run through the ten and see if you can answer in the affirmative. So they viewed themselves as law keepers, the doers of righteousness. Ironically, though, by pulling people away from faith in Christ, the one who kept the law in their place, they've become the evildoers. They've now taken a yoke of bondage and placed it back upon the people. They were leading many to damnation. This is why Paul could call their contrary gospel in Galatians 1, 6 through 10. He uses very harsh language in Galatians 1 and he says that if anyone is to preach another gospel, let them be anathema. Let them be damned. Condemned. They're the true evildoers. See, brothers and sisters, false teaching, this is one of the reasons why it ought not to be tolerated. False teaching is not just a different kind of Christianity. Anything that takes away from the sufficiency of Christ, who He is and what He has done to save you, and you add something in its place, that's not a different kind of Christianity. That's not Christianity. 
Then look at the third insult. Paul, he says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This insult, it brings into clear focus the harm that the evildoers cause. You see, the Judaizers, that's why Paul called them the circumcision. They loved the circumcision. uh, It was kind of like this, this outward badge that they loved. It was this outward badge of belonging to the people of God. Ah, we are the circumcision, the covenant people of God. They would boastfully state that we are the circumcision. They bore the mark of the covenant promise to Abraham. They would be the people who said, you're not the real people of God. We are and we have the proof. And so their doctrine, it included being circumcised in addition to keeping the ceremonial law. So I hope you're feeling overwhelmed because I get overwhelmed thinking about this. Could you imagine coming through those doors on Sunday and me laying upon you? Have you kept the dietary laws this week? Have you kept the entirety of the moral law? But in addition to that, they took pride in circumcision. But and then again, I don't want to completely, they also tacked Jesus on in there somewhere. Oh yeah, we need Jesus too. But Paul doesn't share the same pride in circumcision as they. In fact, his words here about mutilation, did you see what he says? So he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This, this language here in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it it kind of reminds us of, of the prophets of Baal. Remember that, that scene in 1 Kings 18.28 when Elijah's there and you got all the prophets and it's a, it's a showdown between their gods. And Elisha says, you go first. I'll let you guys go. And then the prophets begin wailing and beating themselves and, and they're screaming. And I love that scene because Elijah, it's something I probably would do. He essentially says, yell louder. Maybe he's on the toilet. He can't hear you. Maybe your God's going to the bathroom. But they're wailing, they're screaming, and they even begin to cut themselves. The text tells us they mutilated themselves to try to provoke their God to move. But you see here in our text to show that these Judaizers were outside of the people of God. So Paul, he uses that language in the Greek translation of the Old Testament of the prophets of Baal mutilating themselves. And it's the same language he's applying to the Judaizers. But there's also another Old Testament nugget that would help us to see why this is an insult. Because in the Old Testament, if a priest, if they had a physical defect or mutilation, that excluded them from the presence of God. And you can see that in Leviticus 21, 16 through 18. So Paul's taking this Old Testament language of mutilation, and it's not good, and he's applying it to the Judaizers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And so Paul, essentially, I tried to distill it. He's likening these men, these Judaizers who are trusting in their circumcision. He's likening them to the mutilated prophets of Baal who cut themselves to get the attention of God. And because they are mutilated, they are excluded from the temple presence of God. Talk about an insult. What they loved and took pride in so much, Paul flips and impales them with it. 
Paul's warning is sharp, but it's clear. Anyone who would place the confidence of their standing before God in anything other than the finished and perfected work of Christ alone is not only outside of the people of God, but even scarier, brothers and sisters, they are still under His wrath. You see, Paul, he exposes these false teachers for who they were. Unclean dogs, evildoers who taught a message that shifted the trust of people away from Christ. But it, they didn't just shift it out into obscurity to just kind of float around. They, they shifted their trust and confidence onto self. Did you see that? It's not about Christ. It's about you. What have you done to be accepted by God? What do you bring to the table? But these men were the true outsiders. Again, I want to make clear, these men, their rejoicing was not in the Lord. It was in themselves. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we heed this warning that Paul issues forth to the Philippians. Hear me. Reconciliation to a holy God, it only comes through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ on your behalf. We trust in Christ. We rest in Christ. We bank entirely on what He has done for us. Again, this is why in our liturgy, I think the most important aspect of our liturgy is the assurance of pardon. You and I need to be reminded, not just weekly, but daily, that in Christ, you're safe. Because of what He has done for you, you're saved. That's what it's about. Salvation, hear me again, is not anywhere inside of you. Do not go internal. You lack assurance, the worst thing you could ever do is go in and do an inventory check. Trust me, I know. Our salvation in the Christian faith lies outside of us in the person and work of Christ. Do not ever look inside of you for assurance. Look outside of you to Christ. He is the only grounds of your acceptance with God. The forgiveness that you and I need before God, it's found only in Christ by what He did on the cross. This is why He became the God-man. Man had sinned, therefore man must atone. Well, guess what? I can't atone for my own sins. Hence the beautiful incarnation. But here's the other aspect. You don't just need to be forgiven. You need to be righteous. You don't need your account down to zero. You need positive funds in your account to stand before God as well. If you are at zero and you're clean and that's it, you're no different than Adam. But you need to be righteous as well. But this is the beauty of the gospel that was earned for you too. Because this law that the Judaizers try to place upon people, the Christian faith teaches that Christ kept it for us. Perfect obedience to God's law. And that obedience, that righteousness earned is credited to you. You see, this is why we could say, we, we so often hear 
Salvation is not by works. We're not saved by works. And there's some truth to that. But we could also say from looking at Christ's perfect obedience, we are saved by works. They're just not our works. I'm saved by the works of another. If you are unaware of what the gospel is, that's the gospel in a nutshell. We are all sinners. God is holy, righteous, and good. But in His love and mercy, He provided the atonement for your sins and the righteousness you need. Rest and bank on Christ and you will have eternal life. That's it. What do you bring to the table? Just bring your sin. Come to Him and trust in Him. He'll save you. Our confidence before God should be nothing but Christ. And I, I, I want to hint on this because we might be reading this and thinking, well, we're so far removed from this. But brothers and sisters, essentially, the content of the Judaizers' message is legalism. And it's still very much a threat today. Legalism is a very real threat today. Legalism is placing laws on people that Christ Himself did not place. And then making them requirements for salvation. I think this can come in a corporate aspect or it can come in a personal setting. Again, those laws, you might not hear anybody telling you you must be circumcised to be the true people of God, but they can come in a variety of ways. Just personal experience. For me, before I understood the gospel, I was a legalist. My acceptance before God was based on my reading time. How much did I spend? How much time did I spend in the Bible? My prayer. I need to pray at least a bare minimum of 20 minutes. I have to share the gospel. I would make quotas for myself. These were the ground. Are those good things? Yes. But were they good to have as the grounds of my acceptance before God? No. Legalism is real today. Our trust must never slip. Our trust must never be placed on anyone or anything else other than Christ. Not our charity. Not our church attendance. Not our Bible reading. Nothing. Again, those are good things. Should you be charitable? Yes and amen. Should you read your Bibles? Absolutely. Should you pray? Yes. It's commanded in Scripture. Christ even says, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven. But we must never believe the lie that those things or anything else is the grounds of your acceptance before God. You see, this is why the gospel is scandalous. This is why the gospel is unacceptable to people. Because it hits us in our pride and says, there's nothing that you can do to be accepted before God. You have to lay your pride and your self-confidence down and throw yourself completely on the mercy of another Christ is the grounds of our acceptance. We should rejoice in the Lord for who He is and what He has done. But we also ought to be aware. Look at, trying to rush through this, the true circumcision. Look at verse 3, our last verse. Look at what Paul says. So the Judaizers would call themselves the circumcision, but look what Paul says, and I love how now he adds himself in the corporate body of Christ. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see, the mark of being the people of God for the Judaizers, it was an external, visible mark of circumcision. It was physical. 
But Paul here, he tells us that true circumcision is those who are Christians. I don't know if I'm going to step on any toes by saying this, but I have scriptural warrant if I do step on your toes. Hear me. The true Israel, the true people of God, is the church. It's not a geopolitical nation. It is the church. Those who are in Christ. So Paul, he says, for we are the circumcision. Who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see this, I want to just preface this before I dive in really quick. It's a theologically dense subject here. This idea of defining the true circumcision. I'm going to try my best to simplify it for us. You see, the Judaizers, again, they prided themselves on this external physical badge of belonging to the people of God. And if you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament circumcision, it was the cutting of the male foreskin. It was the cutting of the male foreskin as this outward sign of being set apart from the sinful world. But you weren't just set apart from the sinful world, but you were set apart from the sinful world into service for God. It was a ritual that indicated, really though, what what must happen to your heart. In and of itself, circumcision, it brought no redeeming value. But Scripture records for us a serious problem that existed, and it continued to exist in Paul's day among the circumcised in Israel. Do you Are you familiar with much of Israel's problems? Remember, they bore the external mark of circumcision. They belong to God, right? They have the mark, they belong to God. But what is... Israel notorious for. We saw this over and over in in our time in the book of Numbers. They wandered. They went astray. Their hearts, they were guilty of having their hearts far from God. God, you see, He desires not just physical circumcision from His people, but spiritual and internal circumcision as well. God wanted their hearts circumcised, set apart for Him. Listen to Jeremiah 9.25-26. through 26. The prophet writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in their hearts. You see, it's not enough for a person to be physically circumcised externally if their hearts were far from Him. This was Israel's greatest error. We bear the mark, but your hearts are far from Him. Outward circumcision is not an equivalent to the inward circumcision of the heart. Paul recognized this problem. Paul was a very, very smart man. And he taught this in Romans 8.28-29 when he was running through the presumptuous Jews. 2.28-29 If you know the book of Romans, in the first few chapters, Paul takes time to obliterate all of mankind and declare that all are guilty, both Jew and Gentile. And there were presumptuous Jews that Paul was targeting in that letter. 
And he ran them through a ringer, the ringer to show them that they needed the Savior as well. And let's listen to what he says in 228 through 29 in Romans. He says, for no one is a Jew, the people of God, who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is from man. His praise is not from man, but from God. You see, true circumcision is a spiritual matter. Under the terms of the new covenant that was inaugurated by our Lord Jesus, something we celebrated this morning with the Lord's Supper, under the terms of the new covenant inaugurated by Christ, circumcision of the flesh, that's no longer the sign entrance into the covenant community of God. The distinguishing feature of a Christian, of a new covenant believer, is that he or she has undergone the circumcision of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the written code, as Paul told the Romans. You see, Christians are those who have had the foreskins of their hearts cut by who? The Spirit of God. The only one who could accomplish such a task. You see, Paul, he knows that Christians have experienced internally what the external sign was supposed to indicate. We could say this. A circumcised heart is a changed heart. Which we see, that's a new covenant promise in Ezekiel 36, 26. Listen to what God says. And I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit within you. And I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You see, brothers and sisters, Jewishness and true circumcision are not a matter of ethic, ethnic or physical matters as the Judaizers made them out to be. Paul clearly confronted the Jews and said, you could be a Jew outwardly. It doesn't mean you're the people of God. This is why Paul could say here in our text, we Christians, we are the true circumcision. What circumcision signified we had done to our hearts by the Spirit of God. As was His promise. We are the true circumcision. We believe the promise of God in Christ. The Judaizers, they taught themselves to be the true people of God. But Paul, his, his threefold description here of the true circumcision, I'm going to run through these really quick. The true people of God, what do they look like? Look at what he says in verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The true circumcision, they worship God by the Spirit of God, which is another aspect of the new covenant, the gift of the Holy Spirit as the Lord promised. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-seven. I will put my Spirit within you. The gift of the Spirit produces pure worship, which comes by the Spirit of God. You see, this is why unbelievers look at Christians and say, why would they ever want to serve God? The Spirit who is in them stirs them, moves them. But if we look at this word worship, he's not just speaking simply of what we do here on Sunday morning gatherings, but really it has the idea of of a whole life of service to God. Um, I didn't have it, but I think Ephesians or Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Listen to this. 
Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your whole life to God is spiritual worship. And Paul says we worship by the Spirit of God. True Christians possess the Spirit. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God lives in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. When Jesus spoke to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he said something similar, did he not? He said, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The true circumcision are those who are indwelled by the Spirit, and the Spirit is the one who empowers the Christian to live for God. It isn't stirred up by any outward ritual. It's not some random or self-interpreted worship either. It's according to His truth. This is why we gather to hear what God has said in His Word. This is acceptable worship to God. Another mark of the true circumcision. We're boasters. The true circumcision are boasters. But not in ourselves. Did you see that? Look at the text. Our boast is in Christ alone, for we are the circumcision. The first mark of the true circumcision, we worship by the Spirit of God. And we boast, we glory in Christ Jesus. The true circumcision knows that they're standing before a holy God. Their being called God's people is only because of what Christ has done for them. He's my boast. You're seeing the contrast with the Judaizers now. The spotlight's on them. But Paul says the true circumcision, the spotlight's on Christ. We glory in Christ. Their boasting of the Judaizers, it's in an earthly status. It's in their achievements, in their gifts. But the true circumcision knows that naturally they're enemies of God. We're not His children naturally. We're not His people But by His grace, He redeemed us in Christ and adopts us. The true circumcision boasts, but their boast is in the Lord. And then the final mark of the true circumcision is related to the last. The true circumcision puts no confidence in the flesh. I think the wording there is straightforward. The true circumcised, the true people of God in Christ, they place their confidence solely in Christ, not their merits, not their skills, not their lineage, not their perceived goodness. The Christian's confidence is in Christ. Brothers and sisters, I'll conclude. The human heart It's naturally bent on trying to find anything and everything other than Christ to trust in. In fact, I would argue that this is one of the greatest battles of the Christian life. I'm sure, I I know that there are external and outward troubles that plague us, but I think the greatest battle of the Christian life is internal, trying to fight to remember the gospel. I think that's why Paul says it's a good thing. It's a safe place for you to be, for me to write these things over and over for you again, to remind you to rejoice in the Lord. Our natural bend is to always try to find other things to put our confidence in. 
The greatest battle is remembering, believing, and cherishing that Christ alone is enough for you. This is why we must always be preaching the gospel to ourselves daily. Reminding ourselves of Christ's beautiful words when He said, It's finished. It's finished. Our forgiveness and righteousness is Christ. God accepts us in Him. Please remember the Gospel. Our confidence is to never be in anything other than Christ. Again, your lineage, your success, your talents, your skills, your good works, they will never give you confidence, the confidence that you need to stand before a thrice holy God. That ground will give away. Only Jesus will give you confidence. On that day, that great day of the Lord, the truly circumcised will stand before their Maker and they'll utter, not I, but He. The Judaizers, they were proud. They banked on their law-keeping, their lineage, the sweat of their brow. But when it comes to being made right with God, again, your nationality, your education, your rituals won't matter. But we can stand confident and firm before God because of the work of somebody else. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's a safe place for you.